Welcome to this episode of Canadian Turf Talks, which is uh, supported by the University of Guelph and the turf grass industry. I'm Dr. Sarah Stricker, and I'm here joined with my co-host, Jason Haynes. Say hi, Jason. Hey, everybody. My name is Jason Haynes. I'm the uh, superintendent at uh, Cabot Cape Breton, the Lynx course. Excellent. And we have a guest with us today. We have Rob Wilkie uh, joining us from British Columbia. So we're actually spanning the entire country in this podcast. We've got British Columbia out to the Maritimes. Yeah, we got uh, the, like the two uh, kind of uh, corners of the country here. We're, uh, <laughs> I think uh, I've never been to Terrace, but I don't think uh, it's probably too far off Everness. It's kind of kind of the middle of nowhere. We are in the middle of nowhere for sure. So, uh, Rob, tell us a little bit about yourself. You're the super at Skeena Valley, which is in Terrace. Is that or is it near Terrace? Technically in Thornhill, which is right beside Terrace. It's all one and the same. It's uh, about six and a half hours straight west of Prince George, about an hour and a half to Prince Rupert on the coast and 45 minutes just north of Kitimat, which is on the coastline. So we are a long ways away from from anything, but uh, it's very beautiful, very mountainous and uh, quite outdoorsy here. So golf works in. How long have you been at Skeena Valley? I moved up here from Asoyas in 2001. So this is the longest I've lived anywhere in my life. And uh, before that, I was in Alberta, grew up in Alberta, just south of Calgary and worked at the Turner Valley course for five years. So what kind of educational background do you have that prepared you for the job as a super? Oh, I never feel prepared, but uh, I was going to University of Calgary taking ecology and started working at the Turner Valley course as a summer job and quite enjoyed the quite enjoyed the work and the challenge. It was very science based. And uh, so I stopped going to university and went up to Fairview College, which is now Nate and um, did the two year turf diploma course. We can probably safely do a shout out to Fairview College turf because it doesn't exist anymore, even though we're on a Guelph podcast. But uh, yeah, me too. (laughs) It was pretty sweet. It's actually kind of a shame. I think that having more programs makes more sense because Canada is so wide that we have so many different ecological niches, you know, turf management isn't necessarily the exact same all across Canada. And I wonder, since Rob, you you can specifically speak to this, that you worked in a desert. Um, What was management like there when you were at Usoyos? All three courses I've worked at have been very, very different. Usoyos was definitely an eye-opener. First time I went out to Spotwater, uh, I told my boss I was done and he says, what? And I was putting five or 10 minutes on a station and when we water in a soya it has to be 20, 25 minutes per station or or we're in trouble. It's not only a desert, the soya is built on just straight sand. So if a head sticks on and runs all night, you can walk on it, uh, walk on that area five minutes after turning off and it's totally dry. So wow, completely different than here. Um, it's basically aquaculture up here. So uh, a little different. So what's what's the, the grass like up in uh, Terrace? What kind of grass are you growing and uh, what are some of your challenges? Uh, when I got here, we had 13 holes that were rebuilt. And so it was mostly bluegrass on the fairways and uh, bent grass on the greens. And over the first few years, first 10 years, let's say, the poa was starting to encroach. We had lots of moss issues and until I figured out a little better way to manage turf up here and we've got our greens from about 60 percent poa down to almost no poa on our greens so it's been uh, quite successful we've learned a lot and 
yeah, it's totally different than a soy with, with the heat and the dry, we're always wet. So to incorporate anything, you always have to take the, the moisture into account. Do you have any uh, tips for someone who might be working with Poa and trying to get it out of their greens? What did you do? Just uh, just hungry, as you can tell, I'm friends with Jason. So obviously feeding grass is not really our favorite thing. We've really leaned it out probably the last 10 years. We've gone straight foliar and just feeding what's needed. I did the MLSN weighing the clippings and doing that for one year. And it kind of just agreed with what we'd been doing before. And we've kept that up. We don't follow it to a T. Uh, I don't use the computer programs to figure out how much fertilizer I'm putting down anymore, but uh, we do keep track of our clippings and just feed what's needed. I've always found that hungry turf seems to be best, especially going into the winter or overwintering. I try and get them as starving as they can going into winter and they seem to harden off well. We get all kinds of strange winter weather from ice, snow, rain. It just seems to recover best uh, when it's hungry going in and just feeding it enough to make it through the season has uh, starved out the poa and the bent grass has taken over. So just have to keep on top of it is all. How, uh, how are the winters up in Terrace? That is the one thing that has remained consistent is that every winter is different here. We can have thunder showers in, in December after a foot of snow. We can have a month of rain in the middle of winter, or we can have outflow winds and wind chills of minus 40 and that can last for three weeks with no snow. So every winter is different. It's just, you just hope mother nature rules as with any golf course. So is winter kill a big thing up there and like do you tarp your greens or, or what do you do? We don't tarp greens. We have tarps. I don't like using tarps. That's just a personal uh, thing. I think snow is our best blanket. I will put top dressing down on the greens. If I feel it's going to be a winter where we're going to be bare, uh, just a, a good heavy top dressing on the greens. But for the most part, I just let mother nature do what it needs to do. Hungry greens have, have seemed to fare us quite well. So, And I think uh, similar to Jason was talking about this in another episode, a big issue up there, uh, main disease would be like microdochium patch. Or is that the case? The first 10 years, uh, Fusarium was our, microdochium was our, our main issue, uh, completely different than a soyus. A soyus, you could knock it out with a couple ounces, a thousand of iron and knock it back for a few days and the weather changes in the soyus. But here we can have months of rain, so it always wants to uh, be a problem here. We do get a lot of take-all patch, which uh, seems to be plaguing us uh, every year. But um, we've kind of controlled microdochium patch with our own organic spray, so we don't have to spray for that anymore. You recently were awarded the CGSA Rainbird Environmental Award, partially, I would say, due to your efforts to manage disease without synthetic pesticides so can you tell us a little bit about why you won that award and uh some of those efforts in a little bit more detail well i we don't go completely without synthetic fungicides because we do need uh, some occasionally for take-all patch and we do use quicksilver for our moss problems haven't quite figured those out yet but uh we are getting closer uh, but as far as fusarium goes, I've calculated over the last eight years, we've probably saved 40 synthetic fungicide applications by using our compost spray. It's a, it's a spray composing of organics and ash. And we found that that has suppressed or completely eliminated any uh, need for fusarium uh, control. It takes care of it. So that has been uh, 
something that has just been amazing because we are in a super high disease pressure area. And um, if we spray our spray every seven to 10 days, uh, we never have any any disease pressure. Now, I know you've already explained it to me once before because you talked to my environmental management class, but um, could you explain to the audience uh, of uh, Canadian turf managers how you made or how you discovered your organic spray that you're making? It started off, we were trying uh, compost sprays, different types, different additives, and I'd always noticed on our riparian zones around our ponds and, and anywhere where you do a burning, the grass comes in, you don't have any pythium, you don't have any problems with the grass. It always seems to come in well. Uh, doing some research on some olden days methods as far as burning crops, uh, it was always beneficial. So we started adding ash to our compost uh, mix and we aerate this. So we have a, a big 75 gallon drum that we put our compost in a sock and we run aeration through through the water. And so we've, we'd added uh, oatmeal, molasses. We've tried all kinds of stuff. And then we added ash. And that fall, we noticed we didn't have any disease showing up. And uh, still, you know, you always go by what you've always done. So we, we sprayed some dacanil at a half rate, just out of being chicken. And my assistant, Darren, and I, we decided the next year we would try not to spray anything. And we didn't need to spray any. Uh, synthetic fungicides our fusarium was totally under control and we never had any disease so uh, in talks with jason and researching it it seems to be making a we're making our own um, bicarbonate um, potassium bicarbonate which is a known fungicide and that seems to be uh, controlling it um, we have had our soil dna tested for the top 25 pathogens we have one section of our putting green that we haven't done an overwinter spray or hasn't received any synthetic uh, fungicide in 10 years. And at that time it was eight years. And the only disease that they saw, and that was even just a trace, was take-all patch. Other than that, there was zero DNA evidence of any disease in our on our green. So that was good. And we found that our spray is it's definitely a preventative and, but it's also curative as well. So when we have disease growing and we spray it, it does seem to stop it. So it's been quite successful for us. Have you done an NPK assessment on your compost to know what kind of uh, nutrients you're putting down at the same time? I did get our, our compost tested and there's really nothing spectacular about it. The only thing that we noticed was a little bit higher in aluminum. I don't know if that has anything to do with it, but uh, I think it's mostly the the blending of the potassium hydroxide in the ash with the organics and the aeration. And that's what makes that potassium bicarbonate. So, I mean, it's a, it's kind of a cool uh, strategy to kind of mimic the, the burning grassland kind of thing, which is, I think, uh, an important part of a, of a grassland ecosystem is that fire. Uh, and to incorporate that in a, a kind of a, a different way than most people think it's impossible. How do we incorporate fire to our putting greens? Um, I, I think that's pretty sweet. And, and I've played around with it myself when I was at Pender Harbor and uh, I wasn't as, as successful with you, but I did see some things that were interesting. Yeah, but Jason, you didn't follow what we were doing. You did it in typical Jason fashion and tried something new. And <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I went like 10 times raked. We, we did see some phytotoxicity. And, you know, if you see some phytotoxicity, you know it works, right? 
I mean, and it's been the focus of my job for the last decade is managing uh, microdochium um, with less fungicide, and it is incredibly difficult. So the fact that you can do it in an even worse climate or uh, or a better climate, depending on your perspective, a better climate for that disease is, is unbelievable. And uh, you know, personally, the only <laughs> the first time I've been able to manage without a synthetic fungicide. Um, I had to move across the country and, and have fescue greens. <laughs> All superintendents understand the pressure of, of results. And so it was hard not to spray when you know you're in prime disease conditions. So that took a little bit of, of risk and just keep waiting and watching. And even when you see a little bit coming in to not panic and spray, because it's just the easy way to do it. So, but I'm lucky being in the North where I've got a membership that truly supports the fact that I like to try a whole bunch of stuff and, uh, and are willing to see some less than perfect conditions at the start. And from that point on, once we've kind of got our rates figured out there, the conditions have been as good as any other course, which is, is nice to see, but, uh, it is, it is risky and it, it is, you know, hard to take that challenge on. Uh, one of the things I'm most proud of, but one of the hardest things I think about being a superintendent is knowing when not to do something and being able to know, like, uh, when, when is the right time to do nothing? And uh, obviously, obviously uh, something that, uh, I mean, with your experience, um, I've been able to pull off pretty neat. Oh, for sure. And I know also um, you have other elements that you supported at the um, at the golf course uh, for the environmental aspect in that you were st- doing some initiative to save water. Could you talk a little bit about that? That is not by choice. That's the problem. We've got two large ponds. We only have about nine, maybe 10 million usable gallons. And that's our basically our only water source. So we do shut off our fairways. We water only tees, greens, and landing areas at the start. We have no choice because when that water's gone, we are gone. So this was probably our tightest year. It was the year that I thought we might even have to close the course because we might run out of water. Wow. Luckily, the weather changed and um, we didn't have to. But yeah, it's it's probably my number one stressor working up here. It's hard to believe being in kind of a rainforest area, but uh, it is definitely the big stressor here. So we've had to use wetting agents extensively, proper wetting agents that work for our soil conditions and our weather. We've had to water, be as efficient as we can. We don't have an irrigation person. We don't have a mechanic. We don't, you know, it's just Darren and I working here as far as the ones that are in the know. So uh, getting things fine-tuned is is really tough and having the time to put into it. But we've upgraded all our irrigation towers and kept our irrigation system running as best as we can because that's that's key you can't have heads not working properly and you can't have your your infrastructure not working properly and then it's just keeping an eye on things and and doing what you can so keeping things air keeping everything going is is key because mother nature up here is is very strong (laughs) very blunt you you must like you must be in one of the wettest parts of the country how much rain do you get in a year up there typically on average, we get about 40 inches of rain a year and 130 inches of snow, which is about 13 inches of water. So we've had years like this year where we hardly had any, like maybe 700 millimeters of rain. And then we've had years like the first year I was there and also 2005 where it rained almost every day. So to, the first year I came up here from a soil, so this was the shocker. 
we had a 10 day stretch without rain rain and a four day stretch without rain. And that was basically it for the whole year. So yeah, it's, it's definitely different up here. Yeah. It's one of the biggest challenges I had about out West was just like, it was feast or famine. It was like, you either had too much water or not enough. It, it, uh, it's kind of hard to believe. I think for most people that, I mean, the West coast is, I mean, uh, for a few years there on the South coast, we were drier than death Valley. It's crazy. Well, we flipped, we flipped from doing drainage projects steady to it's so dry out. We can't even dig out ahead because the ground is so hard and dry. So it's, yeah, we get the whole gamut here. Well, and you're also, you're also within the Rockies, right? What's the soil conditions like up there? When they built the course, they did a great job. They brought in a screening plant and screened a whole bunch of our, our pit run, basically, is what, what we have around here. So the new holes are bedded with about 10 inches of a really coarse sand, very calcareous, very a lot of clay. When we take when we used to uh, take a plug out of the apron when we're aerating and you put the plug off the side, when it dries off, it turns into concrete and hard. But we're in a little bit of a bowl and it's mostly marine clay. So we tried to drill a well, obviously water is an issue. So we went down and there was 170 feet of clay. So that's what we're on. Uh, that sounds very similar to where I am. We're uh, uh, very similar poor soils, <laughs> but you know, it actually turns out it's actually not too bad for golf. We're uh, uh, going grass, but uh, I'm kind of uh, moving away from, grass slightly you were previously the president of the bc superintendents association uh what inspired you to get involved at that level i don't know i think everybody needs to do their stint to uh, helping out the association it's not just you're not just in this industry to to look after your your own course and that's it i think over the last 20 years superintendents have been a lot more helpful to each other uh, more of a of a group instead of individuals and I've always felt that you need to put your time in. Everybody needs to do their stint. And so when I moved up here, I mean, I was active in the Okanagan, but as an assistant, it was a little different. So when I stepped up into a superintendent's role, I figured it was my turn. And so that was, it was, it was actually a good time to join because we had a lot of changes in our association. We went from being more of a regional association to more of a provincial association in BC. And that saw some, some big changes for British Columbia Superintendent Association. And even this last year, I was I was there when we hired Ginny Trump, who is just wonderful for our association. And she retired this year. So they they put me on the provincial selection committee for the newest uh, executive director for our provincial association. So it's always nice to, to feel like you're helping out not just your course, but your association. I think everyone should do should do that at one time. Oh, no, I totally agree. And and I know it's a volunteer position, but I think it's it's really important to be involved in those professional associations like that. It's a learning opportunity for yourself when you're in the role and that you're learning how to run large committees and, and have initiatives and do fundraising and, and understand how those groups work. But then it's it's also beneficial to be a member of these associations, whether wherever you are, whether you're the CGSA or maybe you're in sports turf or in your sports turf Canada, because then you're connected better with other people in the industry. And you can ask questions when you have an issue, you can go to meetings and you can see people and make those connections that uh, otherwise you might feel like you're totally on your own, especially in a place like Terrace. Yes. Uh, and resource-based 
probably our best resource in our industry is other superintendents. So if you join uh, the association, you do get uh, firsthand contact with a lot of superintendents. So it benefits you, it benefits your course. And um, I think everyone should should step up. You know, we've all had members that that complain and and don't want to help out. We can't uh, can't look poorly on them if we're being the complainers and not helping out too. So kind of practice what you preach, I guess. Yeah, I agree. I mean, uh, I've had a bad. I haven't been a part of a, a turf association. I've done lots of volunteering, but I kind of feel like you know the, the reason why our industry is great is because we make it great. You can't just come into it and expect everything to kind of come to you. You yeah. You have to be involved, go out there and make it good. And, and uh, what, what you say there just makes so much more sense. Being a part of an association isn't just like something to do as a consumer of the resources. It's like uh, the reason why it, why they're so good is because we make it good. And I think we saw that kind of during COVID when we stopped having these conferences in face to face. And it's just like, I feel like we lost so much and, uh, and it was so good. So good. Once we were able to go back in, uh, in person to these events so, uh, I mean, thanks for your, your service. And, and uh, if I may say, you know, helping out the association is not just joining a provincial board or your regional board. It's also doing like you do talks, uh, research, sharing your research online, being open and approachable. And I know you've you've had some successes and failures with that. Being open comes with its own negative uh, results as well but you you may not have been on a provincial board but you've done so much as far as sharing research and knowledge and what you've practiced it i think that's just as important as as joining any provincial board well well thanks and and uh, i don't know I, I i disagree just on the fact that i think you almost have to do some of the, the less glamorous things you know not everybody uh, uh really sees the glamour of uh uh, of being on the board and putting in that hard work. So just thanks and thanks to everybody else who does that uh, because uh, it, it really benefits us all. And one of the things kind of I've always admired about you is, I mean, just kind of your attitude, like your, your Twitter profile you had, I'm a problem solver. It seems like you always kind of just um, <laughs> roll with the punches. I mean, greens keeping up in terrace can't be easy, um, but you seem to make it look from the outside easy or that it's, uh, it's not that big of a deal. How, like, can you share a little bit about just your attitude towards greenskeeping? I think the biggest thing, like you said, about doing nothing, there's also accepting what you can change, what you can't change. Um, you can do everything right, technically or by the book, and Mother Nature can totally ruin your plans. Uh, to not let that bring you down or or ruin your day. Sometimes it's just rescheduling the staff. Sometimes it's just reseeding your greens. It's, uh, you know, there's only so much you can do. And uh, understanding that I think is the key to a superintendent's sanity. What's your proudest moment in your career? Uh, I think the proudest moments are, are quite fleeting. It's that, that afternoon or that day or two where your course is where you're absolutely happy with it. It can go within a day, but that day you're driving around, whether it's a tournament or or a weekend and and your courses, the greens are exactly the way you want them. That's um, you, they're so fleeting, but those moments are are incredible. Those days when we come back and Darren and I will get back in the shop and go, damn, the course looks good. You know, it's uh it's exactly what we wanted. And it's not, it, it happens a few times through the season. Um, we're always so critical upon ourselves, but 
those those times when you can actually sit back and go, yeah, we did good. We we hit everything right. And that's those are the proudest moments for me. That's amazing. And on the flip side, then, what is the biggest like struggle or barrier as a superintendent? Um, I know you've talked a lot about Mother Nature, but what, what else is a struggle in your position? Super. Superintendents are kind of control freaks. We we like to kind of control everything. And the one thing, Mother Nature is not controllable, so you accept that. Uh, obviously, the hardest part in any job is is the people. And um, when you when you have a board that's that that you have trouble connecting with or or a member, and um, just trying to figure out how to connect with them and see what their perspective is and how to tailor your answers or or your management style to them is is sometimes the best reward and sometimes the hardest thing. So we've had, uh, had general managers or, or board members that uh, some days you go home and you pull your hair out, but your goal is to make the course and the members happy. So you just have to get your frustration, put it off to the side and, and try and come up with new strategies. So that has been probably some of my most frustration, but also it also is some of my highest rewards as well. So, yeah, you almost need your own, uh, PR agent uh, when you're, especially when you're making difficult decisions around, uh, you know, trying your new compost. If someone wants to voice against it, that that can be kind of scary, right? Definitely. Try not to turn to alcohol too much. <laughs> you joke, but I honestly do. I do see that in this industry in that there is some alcohol misuse. Um, that, that That's a serious issue no one wants to talk about. Well, it's it's just our, our our industry is such a social industry. It's it's one of the best things is when I can have some members down here and and share a beer. It's a social thing, but everyone has to keep it in check. And like anything else, you have to uh, everything in moderation. But the social aspect, those those beers after work with with some members or some board members can be extremely beneficial. But you don't always have to have a beer. You can crack a coke and sit there and visit. But you always have to remember the social aspect is is the important part. It's about the experience at a course, and that's what members are here for. Oh, for sure. It took me a little while to figure this out, but sometimes it's not an email that you got to send. Sometimes it's a, I got to walk down the hall and I got to talk to you face to face, and we have to make that connection, right? Those in-person conversations are so very important. Oh, yeah. You can have all the social media you want, but the drive out and stop and talk to a member is way more important. Absolutely. Whether it's backing up the crew, if someone's hitting into someone while they're on the green, you know, do you go and talk to that member instead of posting, please don't hit when the ground crew is on the green. You go out and talk to those members and and even go out and play golf, try and switch up who you're playing with. Uh, that That's so vital. They they actually get a, a first account hands-on reason why you do things. Well, I can't believe my ears, uh, you know, Rob Wilkie giving the advice of everything in moderation. Um <laughs> <laughs> if you had uh, told me those words would come out of your mouth uh, 15 years ago, I wouldn't have believed you. Um, <laughs> do you uh, do you have any any mentors? Or uh, I mean, Darren's probably shaking his head right now. Did you uh, do you have any mentors or specific supporters that have stood out throughout the years? I, I gained something from everyone. I don't know. I've learned from new crew members to to old time superintendents. Um, uh, the funny thing is my old boss, Mike Harrison, who um, who just hated the the PR end of things. A lot of times he he just had such a gut instinct for turf. That was that was interesting to me because I'm such a, a calculator. Darren says I'm over patient or impatient and, and just I just want to figure things out. Mike just had a gut instinct for turf. It was really interesting. So that uh, that kind of affected me a little bit. 
when I was in a kind of a formative stage in my career, but uh, no one in particular, I think I've gained a little bit from everybody. So that's totally fair. So now I teach in our diploma program. Um, What would you give as advice to one of our students or someone who's new or maybe thinking of coming into the turf industry? What kind of advice would you give them? When I did talk to those students, the one thing I forgot to say, uh, and that's to me, the most important that keeps your day entertaining and keeps your career good is just to stay curious. If you're always curious and you're always trying something, as soon as you just get into the the day-to-day boredom and it's just following the steps or following what your board wants, what your members are demanding. We get into this because of the science and because of uh, trying to always improve. And if you lose your curiosity in this industry, I think you're you're losing the biggest part of what we have over other jobs. Um, the other thing is, if you want, quite honestly, we don't have a pension. That's, that's seriously something to consider, especially at my age. Luckily, it's, it's not a major worry of mine, but uh, it is... As you get older and in this industry, it's something you have to consider. We have skills that are so beneficial in other industries. We're seeing superintendents moving out of this industry into areas that offer pensions or offer more pay. And we're seeing quite a glut in our industry. And that's that's kind of scary. We don't pay our staff enough. Our staff works extremely hard for very little pay. They're out in all kinds of conditions. And how do we expect them to stick around for years and years and move up through the ranks and be a superintendent if we're not looking after them? And uh, so there's something that needs to happen in our industry that keeps people in it. And I think if the superintendent is curious and always uh, making work fun and entertaining and the staff learns, then they'll stick around too. But uh, those two things are are kind of key. One's more, more foundation and one's more uh, personal, but they go hand in hand. Oh, that's a good point. I never really thought about that with the pensions. And I wonder if that could be something in future. I'm just putting this out to the universe, not necessarily to you and the BC Superintendents Association, but maybe that could be something that could be supported through associations. I don't know. Our course has an RSP matching, which helps out. So there's some, some focus on on not you just as a person right now, but some caring about the person and when we move on. So that's kind of nice. That's awesome. Yeah. And maybe that's something that people should be asking about also when they're looking into switching jobs or positions or if that could be a bargaining chip, right? Definitely. I think you'll see superintendent contracts changing over the next few years to more benefits and and pensions. That's awesome. Um, and something that kind of hits pretty close to home with uh, with what I've experienced over the last few years. Um, what's next for you? What's uh, I mean, you've been at Tina forever. Uh, what's what's your plans for the next few years? Well, my daughter just went into grade ten, so my plans are to be around here till she graduates for sure. What I would like to do, I love going somewhere new. I love new challenges. I just don't know if I'll find better than I have here. So it's it's, it's a tough call. I I love new. I love exciting. Um, challenges but whether i want to go find something new i i honestly don't find think i'll find a better membership or a better course status quo how's that it sounds like you hit the jackpot i think so yeah that's amazing well thank you so much rob for talking to us and talking to canada actually uh in our podcast and we hope to stay in touch with you and see where you're going next and um if you're ever willing to share your secret recipe for your compost tea maybe we can get that going uh, across the country i share with everyone uh I've, I've tried to talk people into it and i finally decided instead of saying you should try this my question now is why aren't you trying it 
I love that. And and thank you for the opportunity. Well, thank you so much. And uh, I hope everyone enjoyed this episode of Canadian Turf Talks. This is the end of this season, but then I'll be returning with a new surprised co-host. So stay, stay tuned for that. And thank you so much to everyone for listening. This podcast is brought to you by the University of Guelph and the Guelph Turf Grass Institute.